there's at least a correlation between low testosterone and things like coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, colon cancer, in men prostate cancer, osteoporosis. So there's reason to consider replacing some or most, even all these hormones. Welcome to the Wits and Weights podcast. I'm your host, Philip Pape, and this twice-a-week podcast is dedicated to helping you achieve physical self-mastery by getting stronger, optimizing your nutrition, and upgrading your body composition. We'll uncover science-backed strategies for movement, metabolism, muscle, and mindset with a skeptical eye on the fitness industry so you can look and feel your absolute best. Let's dive right in. Welcome to another episode of Wits and Weights. Today's episode is all about hormones, peptides, innovative treatments with my special guest, Dr. Rand McLean. Dr. Rand will reveal the importance of testosterone, its effects on your body, how to manage them. We'll also examine menopause versus manopause, the diagnosis and treatment of hormonal deficiencies, and we'll probably sneak in some questions from our community. Dr. Rand and I will also delve into the science of peptides, exploring their role in the body and practical use in treatment. And of course, we'll discuss his new book, Cheating Death. Dr. Rand has always been passionate about nutrition and wellness, which led him down an unconventional path to become an expert in alternative and progressive medical treatments. His remarkable journey includes serving as the youngest senior accountant in Deloitte's history, professional kickboxing, surviving prostate cancer, and pursuing medical school at age 37, despite skepticism from the status quo. Today, Dr. Rand's practice, regenerative and sports medicine, attracts A-list celebrities and world-class athletes seeking his innovative treatments. From the latest in stem cell and hormone therapies, to IV drips that reduce trauma and anxiety, to human performance health programs and futuristic longevity treatments, Dr. Ran believes that your past health mistakes don't define your future. Dr. Ran, it is uh, an honor to welcome you to the show. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I I was excited to have you on here. One of the themes of your life story resonates me, and that is uh, defying conventional wisdom. That seems to be a common theme throughout your life. So we'll just touch on one of those, but feel free to expand. What was it like to go to med school in your late 30s? I'm I'm in my early 40s, and I can't imagine just a few years ago having gone to med school. And um, how's that impacted your view of medicine, especially with, uh, I think you call it the, the managed health, right? The modern managed healthcare system. Well, there were pluses and minuses, as there usually are, right, in, in, in situations uh, like this. Focusing on the positive, I, I think I had a very different – I know I had a very different perspective going through at 37. First of all, I wanted to do it. I didn't do it because my great-grandpa all the way down to my pa did it, and uh, I didn't do it because I thought there was lots of money in it because there isn't. Uh, I didn't do it because of anything, but I really had a passion for it, and I, and I – uh, Actually, the truth of it is I was traveling across country. I found out I was going to be a dad. And I said, you know, I got to settle into something for good here, not just bop around. This is actually my ninth career. If you want to just talk about careers, not other odd jobs. So uh, that helped out a lot. And then being 37 years old and eventually, uh, you know, by the time I got to see patients a little bit older, I'd been around the block a few times myself with injuries and, and illnesses and whatnot. And that helps, I believe, tease out some of the things where you go, okay, that's great, but I'm never going to really like, I, <laughs> it, it reminds me of a joke. You know, what do they call the doctor with the lowest passing score on the entrance exam? Doctor. I don't want to, don't want to touch that one. What is it? Doctor. He's still a doctor. 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 I, I figured this is going to be the last time I go through this stuff. And it helped me pare down uh, the the things that weren't so important. I knew I was never going to be a dermatologist. I had no interest in dermatology. And so I remember getting mad when I scored. Uh, and this can sound like I'm bragging, but I, I, it really was not. I, I got a 95 on the exam. And I remember thinking, gosh, darn it, I, I screwed up because I overstudied, you know. Uh, so the point being that the optimistic side of this is when you get down the road like that, you learn to prioritize and, and adopt perspectives differently you know, who cares if you get an A or a B in dermatology if you never want to be a dermatologist, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allowed me to focus on the things I really enjoyed and I knew I wanted to pursue. And I think that was an advantage. Also, look, we all deal differently with people when we're 20 than when we're 30 and, and 40 and whatnot. Sure. And I love that a lot, just going through like internship, you know, dealing with patients differently and having been a patient that gives you a leg up. Now, the negative part of all that is at 37, you're supposed to be doing pretty well 
financially and uh you know you should have a lot of other things going i ended up going through this as a single dad at one point um i spent the nights in my van uh mm-hmm. you know up at school and whatnot and uh, that part of it was not so fun although again you know being a little bit older uh it's going to sound trite maybe but it is absolute truth i can remember I finally did. Uh, I was able to afford a place, which is actually just a couple of blocks down from where I am in my office now. They used to be uh, Marine Corps officers barracks, just one room deals. And I can remember sitting out there on an afternoon and, uh, you know, I had an hibachi grill, you know, those cheapo mm-hmm. things sure. that I think even in a CBS now. And I was cooking up some uh, hot dogs and some uh, uh, baked beans. And a lot of people go, oh, whoa, whoa, God, roughing it, huh? And I remember thinking, you know, I'm really not. I'm in California. The sun's out, and I like hot dogs and bacon. Yeah, yeah. They're thinking, all right, well, this isn't so bad. And of course, you know, the take home is, and again, this is going to sound uh, whatever corny, but you know, following your dream that makes a lot of the things not so bad. And uh, that's what I was doing. So, yeah, I, I had some good experiences and some not so good, but it all worked out. Yeah, and that, you know that really resonates with me with the later in life that um, pe- people ask me, for example, as a nutrition coach, how, how could I be a, a good client when I didn't start this or a good coach when I didn't start this in my twenties? Said, well, you know, I've dealt with so many people, both as a father and as a manager in the engineering world, that th- those skills translate, and you've you've got this unique perspective that no other person in med school with you at the time had, um, that I'm sure translates to this day as you work with your patients, um, at nine careers. Wow, so. Uh, you, you talked about the surgeries that you had or the personal experience you had gone through. Um, and I think you, you talk about that in your book as well, in Cheating Death. If I could just quote it real quick, because I did get an early copy. I was able to peruse that. Um, you said you're, quote, alive and well, both because of great doctors and surgeons and because you've been open to a wide range of treatments. And I think your message about health span is partly about having options, maybe options beyond what people think are there. Right. And I've seen people fail my clients. I've seen people fail my very close family members time and again over the years because there's this myopic view I feel that most uh, traditional doctors have. And they have to go out and find other treatments, alternative therapies, hormone treatments, um, specialists, coaches, et cetera. What are your thoughts on all of that? Well, I I think the the point I'm trying to make of the book, or one of the intents of the book anyway, is to get the word out that there are other avenues than what most people think. Even if you're pretty much in touch with medicine, if you're not a doctor or you're not reading the the journals every day, you're going to get behind. Um, And even doctors get behind because Mm -hmm. we are very specialized uh, in what we practice typically. And and that's just a matter of, we have so much information that we have to gather and learn. and, And then, you know, we have to be proficient in that area uh, we always talk about, you know, the gatekeepers, the primary care providers being the ones that sort of collect all this together. I can't think of a better way to do it. Um, you can try and be, well, you should always be your best health advocate, but unless you've been trained in medicine, trying to do that over someone who's already been trained in medicine, uh, to play that same role is going to be harder to do. Um, I mean, you can't do it. But yeah, you, um, you, just to clarify, you're talking about the scenario where you go to the doctor and they kind of have that holier than thou uh, kind of air about them. And you are the kind of the dumb person doing the Internet research. And I'm just I'm very much simplifying. But these are real people's kind of thoughts about this subject. Yeah. And, I, you know, even when I talk to my family about it, is that that's kind of where you're going with this? Well, and I, you know, I can make a joke. You know, you're being uh, redundant when you say, you know, godlike and doctorish i mean you know <laughs> that, that, that's the old school way the very paternalistic yeah. way that, that yeah. but it's still pervasive obviously mm-hmm. because we speak a different language uh although that's changing man one of the things that's sure. a good uh, offshoot of the the biohacking although you know there's a lot of negative consequences we've seen and certainly a lot of possibilities that can where you can go wrong but people are getting interested in it doing a lot of learning on their own and um Again, that comes with pros and cons. Dr. Google is not always your best source, but mm-hmm. it's changing the environment. So patients are a lot better educated. They have a lot more information. So it makes it easier for a patient to, to push a doctor who might be gaslighting them or, uh, you know, playing that, that God thing, uh, which again, I joke is, is redundant. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, that's the point I'm trying to make. And, and, and really the whole idea of the book, again, is to, to let patients and without sounding like I'm a jerk, uh, doctors also know it because, and I don't, I don't think I'm sounding like a jerk when I, because I prefaced it by saying, you know, our profession is such that we're specialized. Why would 
an expert in uh, skin cancers, let's say, know anything about, um, I don't know, uh, ways to reduce uh, blood sugar. Right. We learned in, in uh, internship. So uh, I don't mean it the way that might have sounded, but, you know, the idea is to get the word out so kind of everybody can be the gatekeeper and at least have a little bit of knowledge about, oh, when I see this, I don't have to focus on this necessarily only. That is my job. That's my specialty. But, oh, by the way, you might want to see a, a rheumatologist about this or whatever. And also, the other point uh, that I think you're asking me to address is because it's changing so fast, I make the point in the book that I missed out on a lot of treatments because yeah. I figured, oh, you know, to use the spines example, I'm either going to have to get this fused or I'm going to put the equivalent of a door hinge in there and that's not going to work for me. So I'm just going to gut it out for as long as I can. 33 years later, it got so bad that, you know, the guy pretty much told me, uh, well, first of all, the MRI uh, the doctor, uh, the radiologist chased me out in the parking lot. You know, I said, hey, man, do you realize what's going on here? And then the surgeon said, basically, I should. I need to do this yesterday. So I don't want people to get to that point because then you, you've limited your options as, as I did mine. And so if I can get the word out that, hey, we have this option, this option, this option. And you mentioned futuristic treatments. Yeah, they sound futuristic to most of us, but they're here. Just need to catch up. <laughs> yeah. That's what I, I want to get across so okay. that we manage our health and, and do it, you know, with all the options we have possible. Right. Yeah. And, and part, part of what you said there was, you know, not every doctor's, not every doctor comes from the same place and there are definitely some better than others. There are some that stay with, stay up with the research versus others. I used to have a primary care doctor years ago and I know people like to, you know, talk down about primary care physicians who, who taught and studied and he was always open to every time I brought something up. Oh, you know, let's explore that together. And, and I, I love a doctor like that. Um, and what was the other thing you mentioned there that I'm kind of losing track of here? Um, the, oh, the, uh, how things change over time, right? Like laparoscopic surgeries and things like that. I, I had two surgeries two months apart a couple of years ago, one for a, a microdiscectomy and one for an appendectomy, both laparoscopic. I can't imagine having done both those surgeries, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago at all, let alone two months apart. Um, I want to just, just last personal question, then we can get into maybe the listener wants to hear all about the hormone stuff. Um, what does your personal daily routine look like when it comes to your lifting, your nutrition, your wellness? <laughs> well, I'm what they call a morning lark, right? In terms okay. of prototype. So if I don't get it done early, uh, it ain't getting done typically. So I start the day with a uh, breakfast. Um, mine is pretty much bacon, eggs, and toast. If it's a special occasion, my wife will make me pancakes instead of toast. Uh, usually put a little almond butter or something on there. But uh, then I get into my workout, which will be either weights uh, I'm getting ready for my next surgeries. I've got to get two new shoulders, and I mean that. People say, what do you mean you're, you're, you're training for your surgery? Yes, I'm getting in mm -hmm. shape for surgery because you only come out of surgery in the same fitness or less, right, by a day because you didn't train that day, then, then you go in. So uh, I've been hitting the weights a little bit more, but I love bike riding. Uh, I still love – I don't like getting in the ring anymore because of my spine, but I love you know training as though I were a boxer, so I hit the heavy mm -hmm. bag. So I get my morning workout in, and that's usually anywhere from as little as an hour if I'm doing VO2 max stuff or you know, it can be as long as three hours. And I post all my workouts on um, what is it, yep. Garmin Connect so that I can share that with really anybody you know, in, 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 the, in, the, in a, hey, we're all in this together way, you know, keeping ourselves mm -hmm. first. Then I'll, uh, I'll see patients on uh, uh, certain days. I'll have my lunch. Uh, and really, after that, it gets boring. I mean, uh, for most of the listeners, actually, they might be boring with the first part. But after that, I feel like when, once I get the workout in, which I believe, and I think I, I hope I make this point in the book, exercise is what I call the great equalizer. I've done the not the most I can, but one of the best things, if not the best thing I can from my health span, and then gotten that out of the way. And from there, it's gravy. So, and then I look at, you know, I see patients. I got a few other businesses that are related to, uh, to the medicine I work on, on, on certain days. And, uh, then I'm out, uh, usually before I make it upstairs, you know, yeah. after dinner. and, uh, much to my wife's chagrin because she likes watching shows and stuff. And she's actually a night owl. Uh, not that you have to hear any of this stuff, but no, yeah, these are all fair points because people relate to like, okay, you're a man of routine, which is good. But you know what I say is boring. I love it. If I can get my workouts yeah. in some good food and, and good company and that sort of thing, and then get my job done, which I'm blessed because I get to see patients and I love what I do. I don't, I know I, I, mm -hmm. I don't see sick people. 
So that makes my job a lot easier. I, I, I've already found I take it too much to heart when I see somebody really, really ill and there's you know limits as to what you can do when someone's taking sure. 26 meds and they've got you know three or four comorbidities. Um, I'm just not cut out for that. But yeah, and then uh, you know we live here in, in Southern Cal. Can't complain except for the taxes. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm in Connecticut, so I can complain about the weather and oh, the yeah. taxes. <laughs> I hear you, man. All right. Okay. Cool. You know, it's good for good for people to know this. I mean, you you do lift and you you stay active and um, eat eggs and bacon and all that great stuff. And like you like you alluded to, fitness and uh, movement, exercise is is 90 percent of the equation. And if you're not doing that first, maybe these other other treatments are are the next step after you get those things dialed in. Um, so speaking of some of these, uh, treatments, let's, let's start big picture, um, testosterone, something men and women are interested in. Why is it important? Like, let's just, let's just start there. Big picture. Why is it important? And then what are the signs of low testosterone? Well, I always joke and it dates me with those who are of similar generation that, you know, it almost sounds like we're trying to make it out like that Saturn Live skits for shimmer. It's a floor wax. No, it's a dessert topping. But in some senses, it really is that important testosterone anyway for males and females because it's responsible for so many things. It leverages your energy, your sense of well-being, your libido, your, your body composition. And, you know, tell me there's not at least one of those that everyone's interested in, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm naming a few of them. So that starts to diminish the production of it in our bodies uh, somewhere around uh, age 35, um, uh, whether it's referred to as menopause or andropause, that's when it happens in men and ditto for, for females, you know, paramenopause actually is the way we put it, or paraandropause. And it's noticeable. Um, some people do better with it than others. We've all met the guy or the gal that is bouncing off the walls with energy, right? And that's not their problem. No matter what happens, they could be 90 mm-hmm. and have low testosterone, they're bouncing off the walls, but that's personality-based. But the the dead giveaway, uh, you know, you can say energy, libido, sense of well-being, that good mood, that that's driven by personality, certainly. But body composition, you can say, well, yeah, that's also, you know, uh, genetically based. <laughs> okay, given that too, but that's where people who otherwise are doing well come in and see me. They go, okay, I'm doing everything. And it's a lot of times it's the professional athletes, right? They're like, mm-hmm. okay, they're the last ones because they know all the tricks. They go, okay, well, I pulled this out of my ad. I pulled this out of my because I know. Yeah, the training, the nutrition, the everything. Yeah, yeah and they keep tweaking and keep tweaking until they're finally like, okay, I, I'm done with this, man. You, you got to help me out. I, I pulled everything out and it's just too much work or it's, I'm not getting there anymore. And so I see tend to see them later in, in life than, than say the, 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 the so-called average person. But, um, yeah, testosterone is important for, for all the above. And then, you know, for females only, although having too high or too low estrogen affects males too, but more directly because of the, the, the body parts um, and the way women are designed to use those body parts, um, estrogen uh, deficiency can affect women pretty significantly. Uh, it can cause a deficiency, can cause anxiety and palpitations, the classic, you know, night sweats and hot flashes. And uh, eventually, uh, vaginal dryness. So, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons to look at hormones. The less sexy ones, DHEA, progesterone, mm-hmm. pregnenolone, those are important too. And they all start to drop off. There's this cascade of hormones that starts with cholesterol. They're called the steroid hormones mm-hmm. for the word cholesterol. And they're all steroids, not anabolic steroids, which is where the confusion comes in, I think. Um, and by the way, it includes vitamin D. People, uh, I think, are realizing that more and more. Again, the biohackers and the people that are paying attention. Yeah. We named it in the late 1800s, I believe, uh, and we thought it was a vitamin. No, it's a steroid. It's a muscle, uh, but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but these are all important, and uh, why not uh, replenish them, replace them if we can? We cannot get the body, at a certain point anyway, to make them again on their own. So fortunately, we have the ability to replace them, and it's been a game changer. You know, death and taxes and, and deficiency of hormones is eventual. We can we can fix uh, at least one of those, two of those we can, we're working on, at least in terms of state taxes, right? We, I think we talked mm-hmm. about that before the show. Uh, uh, but, yeah, definitely something that is a game changer, and that's why I think I have a great job because I see a lot of happy faces. Yeah, I, I imagine. And, and what I've always wondered, though, is like, 
first of all, has it has any has anything changed in the last fifty to one hundred years that causes the decline in some of these hormones to occur more frequently or earlier? That's the first question. And, and or is this just a natural state because we live such long lives and it happens to just about everybody? In other words, there's nothing wrong with you per se as this is just going to happen. It's both. Uh, okay. Great question because, yeah, typically it happens to all of us. Like I was implying with, you know, the death taxes and, and low hormone yeah. statement that, you know, if you live long enough, you're going to notice it. Correct. 300 years ago, life expectancy was depending upon what, you know, estimate you read 30 to 35 years old on average. Well, what are you worrying about? You know, it, you know <laughs> adding, you know, malignant melanoma is probably not going to be on the list either. You can stay out in the sun as much as you want. You're not going to get wrinkles or malignant melanoma. So they were enjoying it. There was no sunscreen back then. They weren't worried about it. But yeah, we're living longer. So we're going to experience those things now. But also the way we live, just going back, not thousands of years, just again, that 300 year span there, you know, 300 years ago, we're, we're herding sheep. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, a wolf might come in, you know, and you got to get your dander up, so to speak, or, or an opposing tribe, which is more of an issue maybe. But you didn't have the chronic stress. You didn't have the necessity right. the of uh, cortisol manufacture and it floating around your bloodstream, which hammers you. And uh, that affects pretty much mo- chronic cortisol release pretty much is a detriment to everything we got yeah. going for us. Yeah. And that is a cause of earlier rather than normal or later, whatever you want to call it, uh, hormone deficiency. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because covering the gamut between the reproductive hormones and then cortisol, and I think you mentioned thyroid, uh, they're also critical. So uh, what what would you say to the the statement you know, if, if you can uh, get your diet, nutrition and lifestyle diet in, dialed in, um, you probably won't need hormone replacement. Is that, a, is that a false statement for most people? Depends on how long you live. If you live long enough, okay. uh, you're probably going to be better off on um, hormone replacement for two reasons. One, even if you're not suffering, okay, meaning, okay, uh, the testosterone drops and uh, she has, you know, less libido, but she's also divorce let's say or never met uh someone she wants to stay with who cares you know no one's bugging her she doesn't have the libido because the levels are low and in every, every other area she's fine you could argue okay because we treat people and not numbers don't worry about it then she can live a full life and, and a, but we've connected more dots than that and mm-hmm. we can say even if you're doing well meaning you're not complaining and you're happy with it uh there's at least a correlation between low testosterone and things like coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, colon cancer, in men, prostate cancer, osteoporosis. So there's reason to consider replacing some or most, even all these hormones. Uh, and I'm talking about the, the steroid hormones now. You mentioned thyroid. That's a whole other, that's a protein-based hormone. That's a, <clears throat> okay. But even so, um, the idea that you treat people not numbers or sometimes where you might want to treat it just because it's low because it's going to be better for your health span anyway it, it tees you up for a longer healthier life with emphasis on the healthier part uh rather than being sort of caught by surprise or caught too late okay so, yeah I, I think it's a good way to look at it and i don't know if this is an apt analogy but i that's kind of how i feel about strength and building muscles that you know, you could be 30 and feel like you're, you're fine and capable. Um, but if you don't build that muscle mass as a matter of course, <laughs> it's going to catch up to you. You're going to get weaker, more frail, and then it's going to lead to all sorts of health issues as well. I mean, I think there's, there's multiple things in life like that in the area of wellness that the, the more proactive you can be, um, which is harder when you're not dealing with an issue or when the industry is telling you, well, you, there's nothing wrong, so don't worry about it. Go to a doctor when you need something fixed, right? When something's gone wrong. So I think that's a good message, uh, Dr. Ren. Well, there's a couple of things you did there in that statement too. One is that, um, again, if you're muddling through with less and less muscle mass and you know, implied in there is that you're going to have less and less strength uh, too, then okay, that's fine if that's what you feel, but you're definitely not the same as you were when you were 30 at mm-hmm. 60. And just because you're saying, well, I'm okay with it doesn't mean it's okay in the sense of, you know, measuring your physiology, you know, apples and apples and, and you know, so, yeah. uh, you know, you're definitely, for example, more likely to suffer from osteoporosis or there's a, there's a huge correlation between 
muscle strength, muscle mass, and of course, VO2 max. So there, there's no debate about that anymore. So you're definitely cutting yourself off at, at the at the ankles at least or the knees. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, if you don't stay, stick with it, and you do have to stick with it. That's the point. There is sort of a cat by the tail there that's necessary, just like we have to eat and breathe and a lot of other things. Um, and then there's another thing you, you, you were starting to harp on there that, um, you know, I like to hopefully make people laugh, but I'm serious when I say it, you know, normal. Okay. Yeah. I feel like, you know, this is the way my father or my mother lived when they were 60 or 80. It's normal. And I accept these things. Okay. Well, that's your prerogative. Okay. I'm a registered libertarian. I wouldn't argue with you in that sense, but it's normal to get sick and die one day. So who cares about pursuing normal for the sake of normal anyway? Yeah. It, yeah, it seems like it seems like the best things in life are both hard to achieve and also make you an outlier. And that's those are the things we want to pursue. I don't know if you agree with that statement. But um, and once you once you put in that effort up front, it actually makes everything else easier down the road, whether it's treating your hormones, you know, getting stronger or whatever else. Um, so speaking of the diagnosis and treatment, um, I'm actually curious on the diagnosis part, because now that we've the context is you may not have any issues right? You may not even have symptoms, but it's still good to treat it. How do you diagnose it from that in that context? And then we can get into treatment as well. Well, great, great uh, question because yeah, it takes it a step further. So, so you have a patient, let's say who's, let's take a 55 year old female. And I picked that because with osteoporosis, a female's just statistically more likely to have osteoporosis than a male. Okay. Mm. Um, she's happy as clam, has no complaints, except she's got osteoporosis. Okay, well, you can draw labs. You can see, oh, my goodness, she's not only low in testosterone, but she's also low in estrogen. Even if she doesn't have any complaints about estrogen deficiency, a lot of females sort of dodge the menopause bullet to a large degree. But she's also diagnosed with osteopenia or worse, osteoporosis. You can take some Fosamax. You can add a bunch of calcium to your diet and therefore suffer from constipation, I would argue. Uh, Add vitamin D if you're not on it already and see if that helps. Uh, of course, weight-bearing exercise is always very important to stave that off, but I've seen many a time where you've got someone who's active, she's 55-year-old female, and, and, and you know, unless she wants to pick up Olympic lifting or powerlifting, she's doing plenty of weight-bearing exercise, but she's still suffering from this. Well, you can add estrogen and or testosterone and help with that diagnosis. Now, again, there's not a direct correlation between symptom and uh, 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 treatment in terms of what's classic, but a lot of times it is a lack in the in sex hormones, the steroid hormones that leads to or certainly contributes to osteopenia and or osteoporosis. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. 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 It- and even worse is when someone does have symptoms and then and then the kind of conventional medicine says that there are no options. <laughs> that can be very frustrating for people as well. <laughs> and, and that's really why yeah. it motivated me because I am sick of hearing that, of course, personally. Mm-hmm. But I see it in patients that are told something from another physician. And come on, you know, if, if, if you're passionate about what you do, uh, say, whether you're a doctor or, or say trainer, someone where you're trying to help somebody with with their health, and you hear something from another practitioner that's just complete, completely bogus, it kind of chaps your rear end, doesn't it? I mean, be honest. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I, okay, I got to get this out there to, to counter that at least, uh, if not straighten it out. So, yeah, I, you know, that's something you see all the time. And, it, and it's really discouraging, uh, obviously, to the patient, but as a physician to me, too, because you see someone who really, really wants to do something, mm-hmm. wants to get better. And they're getting advice that's just, again, completely bogus. It, it's very frustrating for, for a lot of parties, right? So, yeah. yeah. And even just as a human being, just in any pursuit, someone who just has that either apathy or dismissiveness, if you will. And I'm sure there's a lot of factors behind it, but we don't, we don't have to get into that part. Let's get into the solving problems for people, which is what you do. And we talked about being treated for hormones could be uh, a good thing to pursue regardless of maybe all the symptoms. Um, how do you treat those hormonal deficiencies? And I want to get into, of course, bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, traditional therapy, kind of comparing those, and then common misconceptions, one of which, of course, is, oh, it's going to cause cancer. We we know that people still think that, so I want to understand your perspective. 
Well, well, that's a broad <laughs> question. Uh, it's a compound uh, question. Sorry. Well, no, but fair enough. Uh, it depends upon the hormone, of course, that we're talking about that's deficient or in some cases excess. And uh, we deal with them all differently. I alluded earlier to the fact that there's a difference between uh, I call fat-based or cholesterol-based hormones and protein or, or, or peptide-based hormones. Uh, you know, you got the thyroid growth hormone, uh, other peptide insulin. Those are the protein-based or peptide hormones. And then you've got the steroid hormones we already mentioned. Um, and they work differently. That's for certain. Mm-hmm. And uh, testosterone, I would say, is unique in that unlike, say, thyroid, where you're looking for a sweet spot, uh, you don't want it to be too high or too low. With testosterone, more or less, you're looking for a minimum threshold at which you want to remain or stay above. You don't want to go miles above that or anything like that. But the, the emphasis is on don't drop below that because you will become okay. sub-therapeutic, okay, um, and there is some linearity once you become therapeutic uh, until you go to there's such a thing as too high. There is. Um, but but it just again, there, there's differences in the way you treat hormones depending upon which ones we're talking about. Um, Let's take DHEA, right? For example, just to throw one out of the hat. I, I've seen, you know, the over-the-counter stuff is, you know, sold in five milligrams, 30 milligrams. So there's obviously a dosing difference. How do you how would you help somebody uh, treat well, DHEA? That, that's a great question. Let's use the HA. Great. Let's start with one. So there's a, an old uh, rule of thumb that for each year uh, on the planet, you, you use one milligram of DHA. I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> I don't subscribe to it. But uh, the problem with some of these hormones, and DHA is a great example, is you've got this hormone that you want to do certain things. And by the way, it has certain other effects because of its ability, the body's ability to <clears throat> interconvert depending upon what's necessary. <clears throat> Okay, to testosterone in this uh, case, yeah. What, what's that? Is testosterone uh, in that cascade? Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, testosterone is further down, but there's kind of like it's like a little uh, triangle, circle, whatever you call it. You know, where it could go down the corticosteroid route, um, or it can go down what we call the sex hormone route because it includes testosterone and estrogen. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of other androgens that we don't talk about that are you know uh, intermediates but also have effects in and of themselves that can be converted from DHEA. So I always use the quick example, you know, do you want to go from LA to San Francisco via New York or do you want to take the straight shot? Mm-hmm. And in the old days, as they say, the old days, a lot of times, particularly with women who were suffering from lack of energy and libido and whatnot, doctors would prescribe progesterone in the hopes that it would convert to the necessary testosterone and or estrogen if needed. Uh, and this is really, we're talking about mainly uh, uh, OBGYNs uh, because mm-hmm. they were used to using progesterone and estrogen to treat the organ, the uterus. Okay, so they're very comfortable with that. They say, oh, okay, we'll, we'll treat it with progesterone. Uh, I'm going way off on a tangent, sorry. But back to DHEA, yeah. And, and you know, this, this delves into why we're uh, classifying DHEA as an over-the-counter supplement, but testosterone not. You got me. Uh, because you can do a lot of things the wrong way with DHEA. For example, as you point out, it can convert to a lot of different things down the line, testosterone being one, but also estrogen, which may not be appropriate for a male. And so um, you're kind of rolling the dice there with each individual because they may convert it differently than another individual. Okay. Apropos to DHEA, I like to supplement with one of the three metabolites, seven keto DHEA, which isn't normally uh, assayed, but that will not typically convert to a hormone you're not looking to, to use. So you can, if you really want DHEA in the system, plug it with seven keto rather than uh, DHEA, uh, which can um, either remain in the serum or convert to DHEA sulfate. But uh, those can run into trouble that, that you don't, you know, by converting into things you don't necessarily want. You're giving you way too much information. On no, no. I, I, hey, I can nerd out on this stuff for hours. <laughs> and I think maybe a lot of the listeners too, too. That's the cool thing about podcasts, right? Was we can get into this stuff. Um, but that's something I learned right there is, is, you know, 
like you said, it, there's downstream effects. So tar- be more targeted, right? And work with people who understand this stuff like you and, and others like you that um, that can help you, you know, target the treatment. So you mentioned creams, right? Like estrogen, progesterone. I mean, there's testosterone creams. There's all those. Um, I actually have a, a question from one of our community members, Christine Y. She was wondering if you should stop all the creams once a month to help the receptors, I guess, help the receptors recover and avoid getting over sensitized or desensitized. Yeah, that's a great question, and I hear that one often. I don't know where that came from, okay. but the idea that you're going to desensitize the receptors, I think maybe stems from the idea that you can actually downregulate some of the receptors, mm. um, and it's really more of a result of reversing an upregulation. So when you're short in hormones, okay. it's a fascinating part of the body, right? Your, your body's not making enough keys for the locks. So it says, all right, well, we're going to make more locks for the same keys brilliant right um and then all of a sudden you use replacement therapy you got plenty of keys and the body says okay whoa, whoa, whoa we, we don't need this much and so it'll down regulate some of those locks the receptors in this case mm-hmm. and uh you know there uh, there's some down regulation we understand when you overdo it if you're normal so to speak like somebody who's 25 years old and decides he wants to cheat the system, whether it be uh, bodybuilding or, okay, you know, sure. or whatever. Metabolics, yep. mm-hmm. then <clears throat> there can be some downregulation there. But for someone who's using testosterone replacement therapy, the key being it's to replace what's no longer being produced, right, naturally, then, yeah, the idea of coming off to upregulate the receptors doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because while you may get some benefit in terms of the way you feel because, oh, wow, You've upregulated them because you're short for a while again. It's temporary, and and you're robbing okay. people to pay Paul, right? Got but it. I can hear that a yeah. lot. No, that's good. That's good to clarify. It actually sounds a lot like the same the same kind of downregulation that occurs during metabolic adaptation when you're dieting, where the idea is that you're damaging your metabolism, which is not true because as soon as you go back and feed yourself, it recovers. So the body's resilient, is what you're saying. It's good for people to know this and not get scared off from some of these uh, maybe misconceptions. Um, Okay, so let's uh, because well, I know we got started a little late, but let's let's. I want to talk about te- peptides. Yeah, I love okay, those, all right, all right, because those are yeah, those are the that's coming from the audience, right? Uh, you're yeah. people that yeah. are, they have the the sort of I guess you call them one offs that you know we may not think about because uh, it's kind of not mainstream, but yeah, uh, that that's a common question actually. Uh, uh, and and to just to bottom line it, no, do not. Go on and off. It's not going to be the Just keep doing it while you need it. And, and there you go. Hey, this is Philip, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of Wits and Weights. If you're finding value in the content and want to stay up to date with all our latest episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast platform. By following, you'll get notified whenever a new episode comes out, and you won't miss out on knowledge and strategies to level up your health and fitness. All right, let's get back to the episode. Um, actually, there was another question from another a different Christina M. <laughs> she was asking if there's a is there's a combination of supplementation with adaptogens, vitamins, or herbs you would recommend in any scenario. Kind, kind of a high level question, I know. Well, if I'm reading or I'm hearing that right, uh, she's referring to what I refer to in, in Chinese medicine terms as what would be called a superior herb, one that's not used to treat a, a condition, but is something you could use all the time because it just makes you better. Ginseng mm-hmm. uh, is, is one that people okay. refer to as something you can take, you know, uh, unless you get sick. But generally speaking, it's good for you, right? Um, yeah, is there one out there? I'm not big on formulations, even though Chinese medicine is loaded with them. Mm. Uh, you have some of those ancient formulations, and I'm I'm too far removed from it now to be able to recall some that I'd say, oh yeah, this is a brilliant one. Keep keep doing it. Uh, there are some that involved um, use of Hersha Wu. Uh, which is generally speaking one of those that's going to only be good for you. It restores what they call kidney uh, yin, if I recall correctly, which really kind of boils down to hormonal balance. Okay. Uh, and, uh, but in terms of what she's asking, you know, I'd rather take an adaptogen, Siberian ginseng, and combine it with whatever vitamin I'm looking for. You know, I think I'm short of vitamin C. And make it. Yeah. You know? yeah, I get it. Yeah. Which is consistent with what you were saying before. Is like, don't just throw everything at it. Go after the what you need. What about ashwagandha? I wanted to ask you about that. What are your thoughts well, on that? Is Well, 
the question I get often is, is that going to be a substitute for testosterone replacement therapy? No. Well, I'll be specific, right? Because I understand in the lifting world, it's being looked at as a performance enhancer. And then also in kind of the hormone support world for things like mood and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Very individualized. And I would call it, um, you know, speaking of Chinese medicine, which deals more with subtleties, mm-hmm. the, the result would be more subtle. It wouldn't be something I'd say, oh, forget mm-hmm. about it. But I think that you might find um, a lot of times when you're supplementing, you're replacing what's missing. And that's why, like I use the example of vitamin B12. If someone back in my day was, we didn't have vegans, but they were called vegetarians, right? And so they weren't getting enough B12 and they did some B12. Oh my goodness. They were elated. They were, you know, they, they were nuts about B12 and they were go preaching about it, right? Well, as a carnivore, omnivore, yeah. I was like, what is all the fuss about? Right. Because I wasn't short in it. And so that's, I think, where you see a lot of individual differences when people try a supplement. Oh, my God, you got to try this. It'll work great for me. Okay. Well, so I'm not downplaying ashwagandha at all oh, or any particular supplement. But if you need it, great. There are very few that are going to put you to the next level uh, or, you know, take you to the next level is a better way to put it, I guess, uh, if you're already in right, good which makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, you're already saturated with it or whatever you want to say you have you have what you need. Um, like classic examples, immune boosters, right? Hmm. Uh, really what's happening is you're bringing your immune system back to its regular state that you've been somehow diminishing by staying up too late or drinking too much or whatever. So, so that's the classic example. So when you hear that kind of stuff, it's an immune boosting supplement. I would use some skepticism. Uh, sure doing that. But uh, I think we're going to find more and more, we'll be able to, at least in the short term, tweak some of those um, uh, by more just stimulating it back, still though, by stimulating it back to its normal, uh, better state. Rapamycin is a perfect example of something like that, where in general, we're we're stimulating autophagy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rapamycin is a drug. I'm sorry, I just took a huge turn tack. I've I've heard of it, but yeah, yeah. Rapamycin is is a anti-rejection drug okay they use it you know kidney transplants right uh in higher dose and more regularly well we found now that at least in animal studies and all looks good for humans that if you use a smaller dose and punctuate the week with it just one time uh it's enough to stimulate this process of cleaning up the mess as it were you know uh, autophagy is where we go at a cellular level clean up the mess that's been created reorganize things you know I call it, you know, wipe the spaghetti sauce off the recipe book so you can actually read the recipe, mm-hmm. again. reorganize the DNA, right, um, so that the cell can operate uh, properly. Well, that's really the idea here is that you're just getting the immune system to operate at its best again by sort of just giving a little nudge, if you will. Sure, sure. And I'm being very broad and very general, but but the idea is the same. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I mean, I'm sure you can examine that in the context of vitamins and minerals and other nutrient deficiencies and all that, where, again, if you need it and you take it, it is going to be kind of like a miracle. Um, I've had people who take, start taking magnesium and their migraines go away and they sleep better and all these just because they were deficient in that one nutrient. Um, but doesn't that make it fun? Yeah. Because we it is does make it fun. It's just knowing about yes. it. it's worth a try. It's a solution, yes. Magnesium's not going to hurt you. I mean, really. Yeah. If I might, just because magnesium is pretty, uh, uh, it's top three in my experience of being mm-hmm. low uh, when we when we check. Um, but you give intravenously to a woman who's uh, in labor and you're trying to to quell those contractions. Every 15 minutes, we give six grams intravenously. That's the equivalent of oral 60 grams. Okay, mm-hmm. but every 15 minutes. Now, yeah, no, that's a huge amount versus like versus days. a pill, which is like a half a gram. Yeah. Right. But if you left it going for a couple of days, you might have a problem. But imagine trying to do that orally. You can't overdose on magnesium, right? Right, right. right. That'd be you too many pills. Some, uh, <laughs> uh, very, very, very loose stools, right? And and maybe you know, because of that, you can get dehydrated and all that kind of stuff. But you get my point that these are, they're not innocuous, but they're very hard to make a mistake with. So it makes it easy for us to knowing that, oh, wow, that might, you know, we study, that might be a cure for my migraines, you know, mm-hmm. or some electrolyte balances there. Gosh. And and what are the uh, the other upsides? Because you're so sure, maybe it doesn't fix your migraines, but it's going to help, you know, relax the smooth muscle with vasculature. So you get more blood flow to the muscles, help relax you a little bit, keep you a little looser. Uh, nothing wrong with getting more blood flow to the muscles, right? Only good things. So 
that's what's exciting to me on a very basic level with what we know now in medicine and what we can do with it. For sure. Yeah. And you mentioned skepticism earlier, skepticism and experimentation, they all kind of go hand in hand and that's, that's what we're all about here. So, um, you're, uh, you're inspiring me too, to keep, keep digging in and making sure I've got all my bases covered. In fact, I think I started taking more vitamin D again. I had gotten off, off track there a while. And then I was reading through your book and reminded I should probably should up here in the Northeast, uh, during the winter. <laughs> so, well, not only that, I don't know if I mentioned in the book, but, uh, going back to that example about, you know, 300 <laughs> years hence, uh, if you were going to be dead, typically on average, by the time you're 30, 35, you weren't, weren't concerned about the sun vitamin, right? Getting your vitamin D from the sun. Cause you were going to be long gone before you had a chance to develop malignant melanoma, which can mm-hmm. kill you. Nowadays we're living a lot longer. So that is a risk. Trust me. Cause I, I, you know, I, I, last time I had 36 of these puppies that had to be removed, right? Hey, you and got a grow- nice tan. I, I imagine it. <laughs> I moved to California and I didn't take care. We didn't know any better. And honestly, even when we did, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. My fault. But the point is that you're going to live longer is the anticipation here. You know, let's be optimistic. Mm -hmm. So we can better living through science, take a pill to get that same vitamin D without exposing ourselves unnecessarily to the radiation that can cause a problem. Let's do it. I'm not saying stay out of the sun, just wear your sunscreen when you go out there and then you get the best of both worlds. Yeah. Good point. Good point. All right. Let's turn to peptides. This is uh, something I don't know as much about as I want to. Um, reading your book, learning about it. I also have a, a collaboration with someone. She's opening an aesthetics um, studio where they're going to offer peptides. So it's starting to learn about it. Um, you said that 10% of pharmaceuticals are based on peptides and proteins. Creatine's a peptide. See, I, I, didn't, I wasn't even aware of that. Of course, I take that every day. All, anybody who lifts should be taking their creatine. Um, Along their with growth, What's that? Along with beta alanine. Yes, which is often found in pre-workouts along with like L-citrulline and what's the other one? Betaine, I think are the, the big three, but beta alanine, that's... Uh, well, the reason being is because you're going to extend your time to exhaustion by three to five seconds yeah. minimally with the creatine. And that creates an acidic environment that the beta alanine will balance. Okay. Well, I'm glad I took my uh, <laughs> beta alanine in the pre-workouts. So there we go. Um, knew there was a reason for it. So yeah, anyway, peptides. So there's a whole bunch of them. Even in your book, you list just just a wide variety. Growth hormone, uh, gonadotropin-releasing peptides. There's some for libido. There's collagen. Um, in layman's terms, give us a crash course in peptides and then how they work in the body. So peptides, really, it's a matter of semantics because depending upon who you talk about, <laughs> most agree that you know 50 or more is a protein, uh, fewer than, 50 or fewer, I guess I should say, uh, uh, is a peptide. But all they are, you know, so you've got these amino acids in, in a certain structure. And I liken it to Tinker Toys, right? Where if you remember that, mm-hmm. I don't know if they're even still around, but you, you have... These, I played with them in the 80s, so yeah. <laughs> the structure you want. And just one ligand different, one extra post with a, another knob at the end, we'll, we'll call it with Tinker Toys, can change the way it works dramatically or slightly, depending upon the peptide and the way it works once it reaches... The cytosol, you know, going inside the the uh, cell or even into the nucleolus. So that's fascinating. I mean, of all the things, and there are a bunch of things. I shouldn't pick one or the other, but that's one at the top of the list is exciting because think of all the different constructs you can make with a tinker toy set. If you have enough tinker toys, right? You go on literally, you know, infinitely, almost literally, uh, and and just by tinkering with. <laughs> one of these or two of them or whatever uh, ligands, it changes the way it works. We have the ability to test now, if you look at that with in combination with stem cells, where we can grow uh, organs, we can grow liver, we can grow a pancreas. We don't have to do the human testing or even the animal testing. We go straight to human testing, not in vivo, but um, uh, in vitro with these and just start throwing and then you bring in AI, right? To, to okay, if this structure does this, based yes. on what we know about all the other structures, <laughs> propose they, some they, more. Yeah, let's see if we make one of these. What yeah. happens? And we can really advance pharmacology immensely. And I'm throwing it into pharmacology because again, yeah, uh, a lot of drugs are based on it. Insulin being the classic right. example. And with that, I mean, we can not only come up with structures that can enhance the ability of insulin. We've already done it. We have. Um, different ways but um you know what we want to be able to do for example is want to have a long-acting insulin well we have those now lantus versus you know uh 
the standard insulin. Um, and we can do that with all different kinds of peptides, presumably, and make life a lot easier. We can make them, some we might want to make shorter acting so they're less dangerous. So that's a huge field. And, and, you know, you pick what you're trying to change. We can come up with a peptide for it. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned the list we have of things that treat everything from uh, libido, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I remember growing up, uh, I say growing up, I get I'm 60, but uh, we had this thing, the Spanish fly. Oh, we'll give somebody extra libido. We have it. Uh, That's the PT-141? PT-141, yeah. Uh, and, and, and this is a perfect example. One ligand different, literally one, and it's a great tanning agent. <laughs> wow. Okay. This is, this is fascinating stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you go on and on about, you know, for the brain, Sevralicin, uh, for anxiety, and some call it a nootropic, uh, Simax. There are different uh, peptides for just about anybody's desire that, you know, that they want to change. So at the end of the day, you're saying it's just a it's just a protein with fewer than fifth, maybe fifty amino acids. Yeah, really, it's just a it's a line they draw. So it's a matter yeah. of semantics. But basically, yeah, they're they're amino acids <clears throat> in, in, a, in sure. a certain length and a certain structure. And just uh, I think the the general agreement is that if it's fifty or fewer, it's called a peptide. Okay. Well, there's some disagreement there. Who cares? It's, it's just, it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah, just so okay. So then, from practical purposes, then what you know, if you had uh, someone come in and what, when would they be a good candidate for peptides? What you know, kind of a potential issue or um, goal that they're trying to achieve? Maybe if they don't have symptoms yet. <laughs> Going back to your previous uh, statement, and then what would that look like? Are, are these you know pills that they take, injectables? Uh, how long do they take them? Like, just give us some an idea. So peptides. Uh, almost invariably, to get the best effect, certainly, you're going to have to inject them because mm-hmm. the stomach acid will otherwise denature the, the structure very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, um, although, you know, you have studies, for example, that say, okay, well, yeah, well, that's why you, ha- you, 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 you can't take collagen and get benefit. And yet we find that, yeah, you can take as little as uh, three grams of collagen to get some benefit. So the stomach doesn't completely torch it somehow, some way. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it comes back together for some reason we don't know about. But as a general rule, you have to inject these peptides to get them to work. And, um, you know, that's usually done with a, a, a very small needle, an insulin needle, close to the, you can get a 31 gauge as close to an acupuncture needle, which is 36 gauge. The higher the number, the smaller the, 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 the bore of the needle. Um, is right into your uh, stomach or thigh or something like that, right into the yeah, muscle? Yeah, subcutaneously, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yep. uh, occasionally it can be done uh, uh, intramuscularly as well, but most of the peptides, I think people just kind of get in the habit of doing it subcutaneously, sometimes for good reason, because you want the uptake to be slower. Uh, sometimes it was too fast, you can get some flushing uh, with certain of these. Uh, but so your question was, what circumstances would you use it? It would be really up to your goals. Now, you know, mm-hmm. so there's some that you use insulin where you have a disease state, but let's say for the master's athlete, I call this, right? Mm-hmm. It's more difficult to put on muscle mass. Uh, we use thymosin beta-4, for example, which helps with the generation of actin within the sarcomere. Which for I'm some- writing this down. Hold on. Thymosin <laughs> <No. laughs> beta-4, okay. Thymosin, well, and also there's a, another way, uh, slightly different, TB500, uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, again, the, the sky's the limit. It just depends upon what it is you're trying to work on. Uh, there's, you know, typically some sort of peptide that works. And the funny thing is, uh, it's not cut and dried like you might expect. Insulin works the same for everybody pretty much, right? And you take too mm-hmm. much of it, you remove too much glucose and you can die. Uh, and some are riskier than others, but then you can have somebody that, uh, uh, uses, um, I'm going to forget, it starts with a D, and I'm not going to remember this one, but it's used to help people sleep. And some people swear by it, some people doesn't do a doggone thing. Uh, Simax is an anxiolytic. Some people swear by it, doesn't do anything for others. So, you know, is that dose-related? We've experimented. Uh, I have. Uh, haven't noticed that it makes a difference because dose, just some people work with uh, certain structures and some people don't. Somorlin is a classic example. Have you heard of Somorlin? So growth hormone releasing hormone, if you take the first uh, 29 amino acids, um, it, it's uh, what we call Somorlin. It used to be branded as Jera. Dr. Richard Walker was involved in all that. Um, 
and it acts the same way. You inject it. It's very short acting, but it makes it, it makes your uh, body produce more growth hormone. That's what it's for. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a small but significant percentage of those people that when they do it, they get incredible somnolence such that they have to back down on the dose or survive the next, you know, uh, morning to, to noon on espressos. Interesting. Isn't that? So, and, it's, and it's a genetic, it's yeah. a genetic difference. Like if we peg some of these down to someone's DNA, uh, not that I'm aware no. of, I don't think we've gotten into that kind of uh, nuance just yet, but eventually we can, if we do enough studies, particularly if you employ AI, we'll yeah. figure out, okay, there is there a genetic component there. Is it, is it genetics? Is it epigenetics involved? Is it a combination of, oh, they yeah. do this with that? I mean, that's what makes us. Oh, so yeah. That's crazy. Where AI comes in, not to change the subject, but, you know, uh, it's in the news recently, right? Uh, yeah, a lot. We so, can talk AI for sure. Um, I don't think we should slow down one bit. I think we might take certain precautions with, you know, using AI and military installations and things that can, you know, drum up, you know, the old, uh, what was it, HAL in, in uh, space. HAL <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> otherwise, let's use it, you know, in medicine because, you know, sky's the limit is what we can find. Exactly. Yeah. That, that is a huge, huge, uh, area of potential is in medicine. You were talking earlier about Dr. Google and I, at the time I thought, Oh, what about Dr. Chat GPT? Because I've tried using it for, for things like, you know, I had a little rash on my wrist or something and I'm, and I'm like, you know, what could this be? And it says, I'm not a doctor, but here's what the evidence, you know, of course they've got all the, um, CYA in there. Well, speaking of the genetics, uh, just real quick, um, do you do genetic testing at your practice? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan of it, uh, yeah. uh, and also epigenetic testing. You know, the DNA methylation okay. testing uh, can give you a lot of good feedback as to what you're doing, uh, the results of what you're doing. Okay, okay. So is it helping? You know, is it furthering your age, your biological age, or is it helping you be younger for longer? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, big proponent of that. Um, while telomeres, I don't think are as helpful. I'd also uh, like to use those. Uh, oh, for well. aging? Yeah, I guess I yeah. think it's also helpful. It's just not as pinpoint as as mm. uh, you might say as DNA methylation. We get pretty precise with DNA methylation, but it's also nice to look at your genome period, not just the epigenome, to see okay, what is my propensity? Let's say, God forbid, I've got uh, essential hypertension. I, I've done everything right. I can't figure it out, but I've got hypertension. Uh, or it's renal artery stenosis, and I don't want to get you know treatment for it. Uh, what drug will work better for me or best for me? Mm. Right? Uh, we have the relationships mapped out there uh, with certain drugs. Well, you know, or certain categories. Well, you'll do better with um, you know a diuretic than an ACE inhibitor. That to me is fascinating too, because you know, especially with uh, critical care, you don't waste time trying something that may or may not work based upon your genes. That's fascinating. Yeah, no, I, this is, this is incredible. Um, I mean, you, you touch on a lot of this in your book. I don't know. I didn't read it in detail, but I browsed it cause I just got it a few days ago. Um, I'm assuming the peptides, you go into some detail about the types and what they're, what they're for in the book. Yeah, no, I, you know, yeah. unlike, uh, some of the other books and, and, um, you know, one just came out from uh, a guy who I'm a big fan of Peter Tia outlive. Uh, okay. um, and his tells more of a story, I think, and, and fewer, I'm not going to say there aren't action items, but I, I tried to go into, uh, for better or for worse, uh, details as to, you know, more of those options, you know, not just, oh, peptides can do this, but here's some peptides. As, you know, yes. Here's a smattering of the peptides and here's the dose and, and uh, you know, here are the pharmacies that I recommend because you don't want to be doing... Uh, I don't suggest that you use, you know, the black market and, and, and places that aren't right. qualified to do so. Yeah, when I was 20, I might have done differently. But again, you know, I'm not 20 and I don't recommend it. You know, do as I say, not as I did. Sure. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I try and present that in all areas where at the end of the chapter, there's some, you know, I guess you call them action items. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I, I personally appreciate that style of book. It's like a, a combination, very detailed reference and stories and anecdotes. And it has a positive, I think a positive, optimistic um, t- tone to it, <laughs> which I can appreciate. It's not doom and gloom. It's here's how you can take control. Um, so I just uh, wrap up with a couple last questions, if you don't mind. Please. Um, 
you've you've probably seen a lot happen in your career, a lot of advancements. We talked about a few of them earlier, and you even said that some of the industry is just catching up. Like you're probably ahead of where a lot of uh, conventional facilities might be. Um, give us the inside scoop. Like what are what is coming up? Maybe that people haven't heard of. What's cutting edge? What's out there that's being developed? I guess besides AI and what we've already talked about. Well. Again, kind of a difficult question to answer, mm-hmm. but I'll say it this way. With all the things we have, the areas, like we haven't even touched on gene editing or stem cells, I think what is going to be the most fascinating and one of the most powerful things that's going to sound kind of anticlimactic, but if you think about it, it's going to be hugely powerful, is the communications between the various specialties, the various disciplines. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is we touched on a little bit earlier where, okay, we'll use stem cells to grow organs, okay, and AI to develop the right peptides, combine all that to come up with a faster, better working uh, peptide or a drug. We could use a, any you know, drugs, doesn't have to be limited to peptides. What we've been lacking, and it's partly because of the structure, it's not a conspiracy or anything, but the NIH funds projects, okay, and if you're a researcher and someone who wants to advance the sport, so to speak, you're stuck in a lot. Of, well, you're certainly governed by money. And there's only you know a limited amount of private funding. The NIH will, I forget what the stats are, but maybe they'll fund maybe one in five, if that's uh, correct. But you also have to be swinging at the same balls in the sense that if you're pursuing something other than you know amyloid plaque for Alzheimer's, well, you're not going to get funded. Well. Mm-hmm. That limits us. I mean, yeah, you're shaking it. Like, that's, that, that, you don't have to think about that. Like, Wait a minute. What? Yeah. So we're just. I'm not surprised, it. though. My cynical uh, brain. <laughs> what about all these other areas? And, and I yeah. choose that one purposefully, actually, because we have screwed up on that one. We're now finding that that's not, it doesn't look like it's the cause. It's really more of a, a, the reaction to something that's going on. And we've wasted a lot of time and research, money. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, without going too far afield, because, you know, I am an eternal optimist. Focus on the positive. We're gonna. The, the future is combining these things and finding groups like um, uh, uh, one of my peers, uh, uh, Gary Michelson, um, oh, Mil- uh, uh, Milken, uh, Milken Foundation, and UCLA. They've all gotten together and made it so that they're going to change the way it's funded, so that if you have some. Pardon my French, but wild ass idea as to how to fix the problem of Alzheimer's. They're going to say, sounds good. They're going to make a presentation, but here's the funding for it. Not only that, okay, the upshot of that is also that you're not going to be sitting there going, like, okay, this is my information. Okay. Mm-hmm. If I let it go, I'm not going to get funded next year because someone else is going to run with that ball. No. You're going to still get funded by these groups, okay, because that's the approach we want to take. And we're going to share that information with everybody else so that this hand knows what this hand's doing, et cetera, et cetera. To me, I know that doesn't sound like too too exciting, but if you think about it, that's one of the most exciting things about where we're going from here is that we're going to start communicating with one another, see some logarithmic changes in, in our knowledge base. Yeah, I mean that's open source. That's crowdsourcing. I mean, you see it in the research in the in the re- academic world where they have like the open access papers, and you have these open databases that all researchers. I mean, all of that stuff is great. Like the more we share, the more we all benefit. So I'm I'm with you there, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been, we've been hamstrung because of money, and that's a crummy yeah. excuse. Yeah, no, because it's a perverse incentive. Let's, yeah. Let's get together and make it a, a crummy excuse, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's end on one more note here. This is a question I ask all guests. You can't get out of it. And that is, okay. what one question did you wish I had asked? And what is your answer? Oh, that's a good one. Um, hmm. Uh, I, I want to phrase it like more like, okay, if you're a patient, what, what should you have asked me by now? <laughs> um, oh, wow. Man, you got me stumped. I mean... You know, we're, we're, yeah, there's so much out there. Um, I don't know what you, you know, there's so many things you could ask. I mean, I could go on talking about this. For you sure, yeah. There's so many topics in your yeah. book I didn't even get to, yeah. Rand, Rand can run the mouth for, for an indefinite amount of time, at least until he has to eat again. But, um, yeah, what to ask me? I don't know, maybe uh, is, there, is there a favorite area I have? Um, you know, that's a kind of a 
whatever. One no, go for it. Mundane questions. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to get out of it because I mean, there's, there's <laughs> you're not the only one. This seems to be a stumper. <laughs> I think it would stump um, me too. I, uh, one of the things we haven't talked about is, uh, you know, without my mention is stem cells. Stem cells seem mm-hmm. to be stem and muse cells, which is something I mentioned in the book. Uh, muse cells are different than stem cells in that they don't cause cancer. They can cross the, the blood brain barrier. Their as are more powerful than stem cells. And until we get some of these other things together and it further medicine to the point where we can do it like Star Trek, you know, uh, you know, we know everything mm-hmm. is going on. That generates the perfect yeah. injection and they were done. Stem cells provide a great bridge, stem and muse cells, until we figure out some of the stuff because you know, I joke a monkey could do it because stem cells know how to home in on the area that needs the the help. So you could give these stem or muse cells intravenously and uh, with some general caveats like, okay, the, the way it's perfused, you know, a lot of these are going to go to the lungs first, but they know where to go. And if you have damage from a recent or even an old MI, a, a heart attack, uh, those cells will go in there and make some repairs. That's mm-hmm. fascinating. And that gives mm-hmm. us a lot of time for those that have been injured or will be injured uh, until we come up with even greater advancements in medicines that can dodge those from the start or protect us even more quickly. I'm all in. I'm all in, Dr. Ren. I mean, all this new stuff, I take some something that's called a biologic that wouldn't have existed as little as five years ago for a condition I have, and it's just crazy how they can target stuff. Um, so amazing. This has been a fun conversation. Uh, where Where can people find out more about you? I mentioned the book, but where do you want them to go? Well, our website, you know, we have a website, psrmed.com. Don't ask me. I came up with that. It's an old story, but uh, papasierraromeomed.com. like to keep a lot of pertinent information up there. Um, I like to stay in touch uh, through Instagram. I find that to be pretty cool through the PR people that I've gotten to know because uh, I can answer questions with that one and then post some tidbits, you know. The world lives in those, uh, what, uh, a minute to a minute and a half. Yeah, uh, the reels. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we're up on LinkedIn and, and I think Twitter and uh, Facebook, uh, all those. So, you know, any of those, I guess. I'll throw I'll throw it in there. Don't worry. And I'll connect connect with the uh, the folks as well, just to make sure it's all all good. And uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I wasn't sure you know what we'd get into, and we covered a lot of tangents that were a lot of fun. And you were not long winded in any way. This is this is a needed conversation. I'm sure the listener is going to get a lot out of it. So thank you, Doctor Ram, for coming on the show. Uh, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. If you've been inspired by today's interview and are ready to take action and build momentum on your health and fitness journey, just schedule a free 30-minute nutrition momentum call with me using the link in my show notes. I promise not to sell or pitch you on anything, but I will help you gain some perspective and guidance so we can get you on the right track toward looking and feeling your best. Hey, before you go, I want to let you know about a free resource I have. They are free guides on everything from fat loss to eating out to building muscle to managing hunger to figuring out the best macros for you and more being added all the time. You want to get the most out of these podcasts and your time to look and feel your best, and these free guides will give you a quick and easy way to know what to do. If you want to get your hands on these completely free guides, you can head over to witsandweights.com slash free. That's witsandweights.com slash free to get your free guides and level up your results today.